The Mahjar matters for several reasons, because of the institutions, uh, the political societies, the newspaper press, you know, the sort of social institutions that these migrants carry forth with them when they move abroad. They remain a part of the political lives of Ottomans and then of Mandate-era um, Syrians and Lebanese. Um, and they do so through these institutions that encompass individuals who are living in Brazil, in Argentina, in the United States, and in Beirut, Damascus. Roughly 500,000 people from greater Syria lived in the Americas on the eve of the First World War. And that's about 20% of the population of greater Syria. And as historian Stacey Farentold argues in a new book, they played an integral role in the making of the post-war Middle East. During and after the war, politicians of the Mahjar remained politically active through newspapers and civil society organizations. They still had that fervor, that revolutionary fervor. They still believed in the Constitution of 1908. And during some of the hardest moments in the history of the region, Lebanese and Syrian migrants held out hope for a better political future. They believed that if they worked with the Entente powers, writing propaganda, spying on Ottoman loyalists, um, writing against the Ottoman state, and ultimately fighting for the militaries of the Entente, some 10,000 Syrians fought for the militaries of the Entente, that this would lead to liberation of their homeland, that, that they would get something from the Entente for their cooperation with the war effort. But how would it turn out? Stay tuned. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This is a special interview being recorded in conjunction with our Deporting Ottoman Americans podcast series. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to learn more about that series. Check out all our installments and all of our bonus interviews with the many scholars we've talked to throughout the production of the series. Our guest on the program is Stacy Farentold. Stacy, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Stacey Farentold is assistant professor in the Department of History at UC Davis, and she's here to talk about her brand new book, Hot Off the Press with Oxford University Press, Between the Ottomans and the Entente, the First World War in the Syrian and Lebanese Diaspora, 1908 to 1925. And I love the periodization on that book, by the way. It's Thank a great you. periodization. We can talk about it. We can talk about it. In yeah, the, yeah, because it is kind of like this extremely transformative period in the history of the Middle East, including in Syria and Lebanon, 1908, the constitutional revolution in the Ottoman Empire. And then you have, of course, the trauma and drama of the First World War, the famine, the violence. You have the post-war jockeying, the, the flux that happens there, the establishment of the French mandate, and then a rebellion against French rule in 1925. So it's this context of Im immense political change in the region. So to start, I'll just ask you, amidst everything that's going on, why do you think this diaspora factor is so important to the story? And is it particularly important when we're talking about countries like Lebanon and Syria as, as opposed to any other country during this period? It's a great question. So um, so I'm writing a history of the Syrian Mahjar, which is um, Arabic for lands of emigration, technically. Um, it's also translated as diaspora, but what makes Mahjar different from traditional sort of definitions about diaspora um, is that if we're speaking about lands of emigration um, and 
we eschew the idea of diaspora, um, we can think about the way that Syrian and Lebanese emigrants continue to be a part of the body politic of the places that they came from. One of the things that my book is trying to critique is the idea that um, we have the making of the modern Middle East in the post-Ottoman context after the First World War, right? Um, but what the way that that history has been written through the perspective of the territorial sort of cantons that emerged um, after that after that war. And so my work tries to follow these 500,000 Arab emigrants who lived in both North and South America and, and assess the First World War and its impact from the perspective of this population with the assumption, the guiding factor, that they continue to be a part of the political lives or political life of their homeland. And so 500,000 doesn't sound like a lot. I mean, there were millions of Italians or Polish or Jews in the United States alone uh, during that period. But we need to put this in the context of the size of, I mean, most of these people are from modern day Lebanon. Give our listeners a sense of the scale. You know, I deal with migrants from um, modern-day Lebanon as well as Palestine um, and Syria. Um, but to give a sense of the scale, 500,000 of the pre-World War I population, that's about 20% of the population of greater Syria. So Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine mm -hmm. together. Um, and 20% of that population is actually, um, in a per capita rate, it's fairly comparable to, comparable to uh, southern Italian mm -hmm. immigration um, to the United States. So besides the fact that Syria and Lebanon have a lot of population out in the Mahjar, in this space that is beyond the territorial boundaries of the nation, but is still very much part of the nation that's, that's being formed, why else is the Mahjar important to understanding the transformations of this period? The Mahjar matters for several reasons. Um, and first, it's because of the institutions, uh, the political societies, the newspaper press, you know, the sort of social institutions that these migrants carry forth with them when they move abroad. Um, I said they remain a political, a part of the political lives, mm -hmm. lives of Ottomans and then of Mandate era um, Syrians and Lebanese. Um, and they do so through these institutions that encompass um, individuals who are living in Brazil, in Argentina, in the United States, and in Beirut and Damascus. A good example of this would be in 1908 with the Young Turk Revolution. Um, in July, the new constitutional government um, actually subsidized the creation of new Syrian clubs in the diaspora. So they built new cons new consulates, right, um, in major... Um, Pan-American cities that had Syrian and Lebanese populations, and within the space of those consulates, they subsidized Syrian patriotic pro-CUP clubs, complete with newspapers, newspapers that would espouse the politics of constitutionalism and Ottoman liberalism, and later of even decentraliz decentralization and pan-Arabism. Um, so the politics of these clubs, as espoused through their papers or as espoused through their propaganda, through their bulletins, these circulated not just around this diaspora, but, ul but ultimately came home to the Middle East. And so we've said that the Mahjar are sort of wherever people have gone from the Arabic-speaking uh, Eastern Mediterranean, so to speak, but of course that's not an even space. There are certain sites in this sort of constellation that are particularly important. Maybe you could Tell us about some of the places where you've had to look for, for your sources for your project. I don't necessarily want to get into the pushes and pulls idea of migration here, but there was a reason why Syrians and Lebanese ended up in the three largest settler societies of the New World. That is Brazil, Argentina, and the United States. And even more specifically, Syrians and Lebanese tended to congregate within the port cities 
of on the Atlantic basin of this part of um, this, these parts of the Americas, they tended to first settle into cities, which turned into something that um, Alexa Naff famously called the mother colony, the sort of first site of Syria's colonization of the world. Um, and within these enclaves, you had that's where you had the newspaper presses, that's where you had these political parties, and that's where you had um, immigrant activism. Just to give a sense of scale, I argue that these three sort of super colonies became something like epicenters for nationalist politics during the First World War. And part of the reason for that is because of the 500,000 odd Syrian, um, Lebanese and Palestinian migrants that lived across the Americas, something like 350,000 of them lived in one of these three countries in Brazil, Argentina, or the United States. They, there were those who ended up in the Caribbean or in Central America as well, but um, usually after spending some period of time in one of the mother colonies in Buenos Aires, Sao Paulo, Rio de Janeiro, New York City, Boston, to a lesser extent. So as we said, the book centers on the period of 1908 to 1925, but really the focus there within that period is, of course, the First World War and its aftermath. So tell us about, very briefly, of course, you know, for context, what happens during the First World War in the home region, but then also how the Mahjar comes to play into this. The basic context of the First World War in Syria and Lebanon is that uh, you have this Young Turk Revolution, um, which restores constitutional government to the Ottoman Empire, and there are many within um, greater Syria, in Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, who see in this um, revolution an opportunity for um, increased Arab participation in the government. There are also those more specifically within Lebanon who see an opportunity for um, an increased exercise of administrative autonomy. And at any rate, you know, you have a few, a couple of different political impulses, but you have a lot of excitement around the idea of um, horia, around the idea of freedom, freedom translated as liberty. And so you can see how this um, created a lot of energy around the Young Turk Revolution, around the CUP party. But it also created a potential for contention and clash because, as we know, the CUP was ultimately somewhat illiberal, somewhat illiberal. It was illiberal in its practice of, of its principles, and it was very sort of interested in state centralism from the top down. Uh, this ultimately produced a lot of uh, contention with Arab parties, both in the Middle East as well as those that were centered in the diaspora. I think that, that during the First World War, essentially Syria becomes sort of a provisioning ground underneath Governor General Jamal Pasha. Uh, this is the moment when you have closing down of civ civilian infrastructure, the closing of schools, the closing of hospitals, the sort of requisitioning of crops and feeding the army, the stationing and barracking of, of soldiers, and the mass conscription of um, Christians in Lebanon and Syria. All of this really kind of produces a crisis to civil society in Syria. Uh, Jamal Pasha also famously imposes uh, censorship on the press in Syria and Lebanon. So I argue that the diaspora, because they had this sort of revolutionary fervor of 1908, which had by 1914 become um, highly critical of the CUP itself, they, they, didn't, they weren't anti-Ottoman. They believed the CUP wasn't living up to the promises of its revolution, um, and they were trying to call its bluff. They still had that fervor, that revolutionary fervor, 
they still believed in the Constitution of 1908. They had lost faith in the in the ruling party of the Ottoman state. And what's more, Jamal Pasha couldn't ban their press. He couldn't stop them from politically organizing. They had an amazing amount of liberty because they were outside of the empire and they weren't um, running away from being conscripted. They weren't hiding from the government. They weren't being hanged and they weren't succumbing to famine. Right, yeah. Briefly for context, I mean, the main story of the war for this region uh, of the Ottoman Empire is really the famine and sort of the devastation that, of course, the Machar not only doesn't experience firsthand, but actually plays a role in providing relief and aid, as some other scholars have certainly uh, written about. You've made a very interesting point about how this large diaspora through the, di- the discourses of liberty is 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 very quickly paving the way for independence effectively. I mean, that's that's where things are going. And it's true, the Ottoman Empire lost the war and got broken up because of that defeat. Nonetheless, nothing was predetermined really about how that was going to shake out. And so how do you how do you see the uh, diaspora playing a role in this transitional period sort of after the Ottoman defeat? when the fate of the Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire is being determined, essentially. There were precursors during the war. Uh, Those same political committees in 1908, they also were at the forefront of um, some of the the campaigns for humanitarian relief, most notably Near East Relief, as well as the American Red Cross. Um, But aside from humanitarian work, um, there was a lot of resistance activity happening in the diaspora. Writing these were individuals, activists who wrote propaganda for the Entente. They believed that if they worked with the Entente powers, writing propaganda, spying on Ottoman loyalists, um, writing against the Ottoman state, and ultimately fighting for the militaries of the Entente, some 10,000 Syrians fought for the militaries of the Entente, that this would lead to liberation of their homeland, that that they would get something from the Entente for their cooperation with the war effort. Um, And so when the war ends in 1918, these same political parties are seeking to make good on those efforts. They're seeking to make good on the promises that they believe that they're due uh, to be given, if not outright immediate independence, um, to be at the bargaining table, you know, not just as Syrians as such, right, but as Syrians living in diaspora, they want to be at the bargaining table, um, you know, concerning the fate of their homeland. I was very intrigued by this section of your book, dealing with a plan for, or a proposed plan, I guess, for uh, an American mandate uh, in, in Lebanon. I had seen similar things proposed actually for Turkey, right? That before we had the Republic of Turkey, there was the idea that maybe the U.S. would have a mandate. And, and eventually the U.S. had no mandates in the Middle East. But yeah, tell, tell us more about that, uh, sort of the idea behind this uh, potential space for um, American uh, influence uh, instead of the eventual French mandate that takes place. You know, the typical story of 1919 is the Wilsonian moment. It's inside the halls of the Paris Peace Conference. We know about the Arab nationalist delegation, the Syrian delegation, the Lebanese delegations, and sort of the the contest that happened vis-a-vis who got access to this constructed space of the Paris Peace Conference. And the French were very much the ones constructing this space 
in the peace conference. And so I wrote this chapter on this idea about the U.S. mandate for Syria because I wanted to think about the ways in which the, the predominant idea that emerges from this conference and from the petitions in that conference is that the Syrians and Lebanese and the diaspora supported the French mandate or that they supported the mandate in general and the French mandate in particular. That narrative only makes sense if you're only looking at the petitions and the voices that made it into the conference. Um, so if you look at the various people who were rejected, who were, at, who were turned away at the gate, whose petitions were ignored, or who were organizing abroad, um, you get a very different story. And so there's this political party that I think is just really interesting, and there's actually a number of records that have been preserved by them called the New Syria National League. And some of the, some of the men who organized for this political party included um, Ibrahim uh, Rahbani, uh, Philip K. Hitty, uh, George uh, Hayrala. Um, they organized in New York City, and they organized across the diaspora agitating for a U.S. mandate. And they believed, ultimately, that they were going to get the United States of America to offer technical assistance to rebuild a greater Syrian state, so Syria, Palestine, and Lebanon. And they believed that this would be a buttress against the nefarious forces of European colonialism um, as as they were presenting themselves in Paris at that time. I mean, it's just very fascinating. You know, of course, all this activism is going on in, in from people based in the United States where there are so many Syrian and Lebanese already living to just imagine if an American mandate had been in Syria and Lebanon, how different that would have looked. It would have really connected the Mahjar to the homeland in a, in a, in a new, unprecedented way, politically, so to speak. And of course, that's not what happens at all. Right. Yeah, and one, you know, one of the things that, that this party, the New Syrian National League, promises to Woodrow Wilson is that if, if Woodrow Wilson will endorse the United States mandate with or without partnership with Amir Faisal and his, and his Arab state, that 250,000 Arab American migrants would repatriate to the Middle East, which is not something that happened either. But it was, some, it was sort of a thinkable thought for, for those weird months between the 1918 armistice and the declaration of the mandates in 1920. And so this is an interesting point because just as the political fate of Syria and what would become Syria, Lebanon, all the states of the Middle East is being determined, the mobility of people in the diaspora, which had forged such strong connections between the Mahjar and the, the home countries, uh, that is also sort of changing or is, is coming into question for the first time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the First World War, just the practicalities of the Mediterranean blockade had, had effectively stymied um, new, em new emigration from Syria and Lebanon um, during the period of the war. But in 1918, the question arose about what would happen, right? You have all these emigrants who, after all, had like come to America thinking of themselves as like going to work for a period of time. They, they were, many of these people believed that they were ultimately going to go back home once they had made their fortunes or, or not made their fortunes. Um, and so they, there were a number of people in the diaspora who were eager to go back home. Um, the United States actually had uh, the Travel Control Act of 1918, which had prohibited all cross-border migration of Ottoman nationals, Syrians included. And they held that in force through the duration of the Paris Peace Conference. Um, they were they were deeply concerned. The, the Wilson administration was deeply concerned about 
essentially American immigrants going back into Ottoman lands while the Paris Peace Conference was still ongoing, and in some cases there were still conflict happening. Um, so yeah, all of these all of these factors they combined to sort of place new limits on the mobility of Ottoman subjects in general and Syrians. One thing that Syrians did have, um, and I talk about this in in chapter five, but one thing that Syrians did have access to is a special a special safe conduct passport that was offered them by the French Foreign Ministry, and this was a special sort of exemption to that travel ban, this 1918 travel ban, where they could. Um, they could sort of apply for French protection and have the right to repatriate to the Middle East. And the idea was that these documents would be given to people who were going to permanently repatriate to lands that the French wanted to claim, wanted to sort of lay claim to as her mandate. Um, and it's interesting that this is happening before the mandates were officially granted France. They, they were in some essence trying to, you know, by stamping passports, um, sort of follow these migrants back home. Ottoman History Podcast is a non-commercial, unaffiliated, and low-budget program. But we do have costs. And that's why we're very grateful to the fans who support our project by donating to our Patreon account. Shout out in this episode to some of those patrons. Zardas Lee, Yasemin Akchaguner, Uygar Tazebay, Rashid Resayev, Oktay Orhun, and Hakan Vurel. And special thanks to a few of our faculty patrons. Shadash Achar, Serafima Starostina, Natalie Rothman, Will Hanley, and Megan Sires. Thank you for using our podcast in the classroom and helping make it available to students around the globe with your generous contributions. Now back to our interview with Stacey Farentold about her book, Between the Ottomans and the Entente. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Stacey Farentold talking about her book, Between the Ottomans and the Entente, out this year from Oxford University Press. We've been discussing the role of the Arab diaspora, the Mahjar, in the life and politics of greater Syria before, during, and after the First World War. And then in 1920, we have yet another big shift, the creation of the French Mandate. What changed? One thing that did change with the establishment of the French mandate in Syria and Lebanon was that the French were deeply concerned about the nationality or prospective nationality and thus the travel entitlements of Syrian and Lebanese emigrants. Um, and so this, this, broke, this shook out in a couple of ways. When it came to Lebanon, France was actually deeply invested in trying to get Lebanese emigrants to return home, especially Christian Lebanese emigrants, um, because they were very worried about continuing emigration of Christians out of the mountain, right, and, that, and what that would do to the demographic balance that the French were um, actively trying to employ there. When it came to Syria, though, the French didn't they didn't rely on the diaspora for like a symbolic source of legitimacy in quite the same way. They literally ruled Syria through 
brute military occupation. And they were constantly putting down insurgencies, and they were constantly worried that these insurgencies were funded from abroad, from the diaspora. Um, and so the French did a couple of things. They, they practiced both carrot and stick. When it came to Lebanese immigrants, they would do what they could to sort, to filter the repatriation of immigrants back to Lebanon, right? Emigrants of a certain sort. And when it came to Syria, they wanted to sort of stop both new emigration, new departures from Syria, but they also wanted to, in some essence, place a, a paper wall, you know, um, or build some kind of like, almost like a transoceanic partition between Syria and her diaspora um, because they saw this diaspora as a, as a potential source of subversion, or in some cases, an actual source of, sub, of subversion. There were Arab nationalists who were in the Americas contesting France's right to rule. Um, so, you know, understanding this about French, the French mandate context is important because in that moment of the 1920s, the United States in particular is, um, they're writing new immigration legislation. Specifically, they want to regulate migration through the imposition of quota acts. So this happens first with the Emergency Quota Act of 1921, and then the more famous Johnson-Reed Act or the Immigration Act of 1924, which placed a quota, an annual quota, on all immigrant groups on the basis of their national origins. Um, and the, or, the, the quota for Syrians and Lebanese, the French mandated, um, spaces was 100 persons a year. So this effectively like halted legal immigration, legal immigration of Syrians and Lebanese to America. It's easy to just kind of describe that or think about that low quota as the product of American nativism full stop. Um, but really, there's an additional layer of context, and that's that the Americans are dealing with the French and, com and, and coordinating with the French and cooperating with the French mandate to halt the flows of immigration or to cut, you know, to cut the ties that exist between the Arab world and, and its diasporas. And why is that? The French mandate, they, they're mostly worried about emigration of Lebanese Christians, right. but they see America's quota legislation as a meaningful way to say— you know, to approach the Americans and say, you know, we're on the same page, right? We both want we both want to stop this migration. It's depleting Lebanon and Syria of its, you know, human reserves, if you will. Um, and we will do what we can to cooperate with American quota legislation. In the end, though, like this legislation doesn't actually effectively stop Lebanese and Syrian emigration out from the Middle East. What it does do is that Syrians and Lebanese will arrive at the port in New York and then they're turned south and they end up in South America. Sometimes they end up in Brazil and Argentina and then they're kicked off the boat. Sometimes they go to Mexico and then they think they're, they're going to sort of, you know, clandestinely sneak across the border. Um, but yeah, so we do see the southern colonies of the of the Mahjar sort of swell and right. become the sort of center of the Syrian world abroad. And of course, there's a lot of illicit migration at the same time. In our, in our series, a number of cases we've encountered involve migrants going to Cuba and then entering uh, the U.S. Uh, illicitly. Mm -hmm. um, but on this interesting subject of how this, uh, the U.S. quota system worked in favor of French mandate policy, it's very fascinating because at the same time, French policy regarding the nationality of people who are residing in the diaspora 
as far as I can tell, strips many people of their nationality that they would have had. The, the pla- they no longer had the nationality of the place they were born. Can you explain more about that? Yeah. So, you know, I, I cover this. Um, it's... Um, it's it's an interesting politics that emerges because here here's where we really you know in the early part of the book um, I'm speaking about Syria and Lebanon together which makes sense in the Ottoman context but the French really treated Syria and Lebanon differently and that led them to treat emigrants from those two places very differently and they were trying to impose a territorial determinism that for better or worse and mostly worse continues to guide the historical tradition or the historiographical tradition today when it came to Lebanon. France's policies regards Lebanese emigrants were as much about embrace as alienation. Lebanese emigrants um, were counted in the census of 1921. Um, It swayed the confessional balance in the favor of Christians in that country, and that was part of the point. That's part of why the French were, were pursuing them. Um, But what that census also did was that it opened up the very real expectation and ultimately opened up the possibility of Lebanese emigrants, even those permanently domiciled abroad, to get to obtain Lebanese nationality and citizenship. And so the other thing that happened in Lebanon that was different than Syria was that the French wrote a nationality law for Lebanon in 1925. That law was in conformity with the Treaty of Lausanne. Um, articles 34 and 36 of the Treaty of Lausanne, they, they talk about optional nationality for, you know, displaced persons and emigrants and this sort of thing. So the Treaty of Lausanne and the Lebanese Nationality Law of 1925 co- worked together to open a pathway for Lebanese emigrants to invoke Lebanese nationality. Not everyone who tried to do so from, say, Brazil um, was accepted. There was a there was a pretty stringent vetting process. There's um, I've read a number of petitions about Lebanese that were really unhappy about being rejected, right, and and ultimately not given nationality or citizenship rights. But for the Lebanese, it was one case. For Syrians, um, by contrast, we don't see a census of population, to my knowledge, and maybe not even at home, but certainly not in the diaspora. We don't see the swift extension of a nationality law, um, and we don't see any extension of nationality, French mandate nationality codes to Syrian immigrants. Syrian immigrants were theoretically um, protected or given the right to opt for a Syrian nationality under Lausanne, but they had to do so between 1923 and 1926, which was like when those two clauses for optional nationality were still good. Um, in Syria, right in the middle of that, 1925, you have the beginning of this uh, great Syrian revolt. They, they believed that um, this revolt was partially funded from abroad. This is the work that Reem Bailouni does. Um, and uh, yeah, the response at one point was actually to threaten the entire swaths of this diaspora with forced denationalization or denaturalization, or rather just to deny them the right to the nationality option. So in 1926, for instance, in retaliation for um, nationalist organizing by Amin Arslan in Buenos Aires, the French mandate threatens to denationalize 110,000 Syrians living in Argentina. They then, they back away when the international community sanctions them. But we see that there's a difference in um, the way that Lebanese immigrants versus Syrian immigrants are treated by the mandate. And I mean, there's also a larger consequence of the establishment of this mandate that we need to look at, which is 
those who don't opt into the nationality before that window closes, if they aren't naturalized in the countries they're living in, like the United States, as I think most of the migrants didn't immediately get naturalized, it takes a long time, a lot never did it for various reasons, um, they're effectively left without a nationality. Yeah, and so this is interesting. Um, and yeah, that's that's what happens. Um, you have a number of people um, in Argentina. I mean, you know, we'll get to the U.S. in a minute, but in Argentina, by 1926, only 2.8% of Syrian and Lebanese immigrants in that country had successfully naturalized as Argentinians. And that's despite Argentina having the most liberal um, naturalization policies on the Western Hemisphere. And so what that says is that these were people that they still had their Ottoman documents and they it's not necessarily that they were still Ottoman, right? Yeah. It was that they wanted to be, they wanted to claim a nationality that was true to them. A lot of people were very, were deeply ambivalent about claiming a Syrian nationality when it was a French Syrian nationality, for instance. So they would just wait. After the Treaty of Lausanne expires, yeah, you do have um, an entire generation. It's like the last Ottoman generation that, they're of dubious nationality. They can't necessarily claim, they can't claim rights of the countries that they live within, at least not as citizens, until they go through a lengthy naturalization process, which in the United States still takes five years at that moment. Um, but it gets harder and harder yeah. as, as that those decades go on. This is true. And the United States is, you know, ramping up its deportation, right? <laughs> and, uh, so this is, a, this is a problem. They're left a you know, we wouldn't necessarily, maybe we wouldn't call it stateless like we call stateless today, but these are people without a nationality. And if I may, by virtue of this ubiquitous to the Western Hemisphere tradition of birthright citizenship, right? It's birthright citizenship is a tradition that is both ubiquitous in the, in the, in the Western Hemisphere, but also peculiar to the Western Hemisphere. And this is a moment in the 1920s and 1930s. You have all these people all over the world. Who, ha who suffer this fate because Lausanne goes bad, right? Mm -hmm. It expires. And you have all these people that are rendered de facto stateless. Peculiar, it's peculiarly not as much of an issue in the Americas because of birthright citizenship, because that statelessness is limited to one generation. Right. right? So their children their who are children. born in the United States are citizens. Whereas yeah. if they had been living in France, I don't know. Yeah. And the same thing, right? Argentina, Brazil, you know, um, everywhere in the American end of this diaspora. Um, meanwhile, you have stateless communities in the Middle East that date back to the First World War. So so what's the takeaway here? How did this fundamentally, you know, the Machar is so important in the lives of, of Syria and Lebanon. How did the establishment of French rule change that relationship? Probably the most significant way that the establishment of the French mandate or its first decade changed this relationship was that whereas the Ottomans, um, okay, the Ottomans did go through periods of time of ignoring the diaspora, of, of legislating against emigration, of even cutting ties with the diaspora. In the context of the First World War, they're, they're trying to cut ties with the diaspora. They see it as, as a political threat. Um, but there's also moments of embrace, right? And these moments of embrace are irrespective of questions about nationality and citizenship. One thing that changes with the establishment of French rule is that the French are invested simultaneously in claiming the diaspora and in creating a territorial state. And so as time progresses, 
after 1920. You see more investment in, crea in the creation of hard and fast borders of boundaries, right? And so you have a, a, a continuing redefinition of what those boundaries mean for emigrants who want to return home. By the late 1920s, you could pretty much you could call what's happening between the French Mandate and its diasporas a sort of diasporic partition. The French are claiming those emigrants who they see as politically useful, but the rest they're shutting the door on, right? And they're doing this in service to a, a nation-building project that is fundamentally about claiming territory. Well, it's incredibly fascinating and. For our listeners, I highly recommend checking out the book Between the Ottomans and the Entente to see not only how sort of fluid and contingent many of the things that are happening uh, in Syria and Lebanon, you know, during the broader World War I period really are, uh, but also to, to learn more about just how incredibly intertwined the fate of this region of the world, which is once currently in question with regard to Syria, right? We don't know what the future of Syria is, how much that fate was intertwined, uh, you know, not just with Western powers, the mandates and all that, but with, with the United States. And so on that note, I want to thank you, Stacy, for coming on the program. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, there's a lot more we could talk about, but we'll leave the interview at that. Again, we'll encourage our listeners to check out the book Between the Ottomans and the Entente out from Oxford University Press in 2019. Also want to invite you to our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, for other episodes related to today's topic, and especially our series, Deporting Ottoman Americans, where you'll hear a little bit more from Stacey Farentold and from a lot of colleagues that have been mentioned or alluded to during this podcast. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening, and join us next time on Ottoman History Podcast.